This is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bet Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids. I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Hello, welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast. It's me, Bet. Today's episode is all things labor and delivery. And I learned so much from Trish today, and I know you will too. Even if you're not pregnant or expecting to be pregnant anytime in the future, I actually think you'll enjoy this episode too. We talk about a lot of bold topics around labor and delivery, and I think some of them can be applied to any time we are dealing with our medical professionals or having to be in the hospital. She really encourages us to be bold and to be knowledgeable and that knowledge is power, and it gives us confidence to ask questions and maybe push back a little bit when something just doesn't doesn't feel quite right. On labor and delivery, she tackles some of the most popular questions. When do I go to the hospital? How can I naturally go into labor? What should I pack? Should I do a birth plan? Should I have an epidural? We also talk about VBACs, dilation, induction, pain management, Pitocin. You guys, we tackle so many things. And I really believe this episode is so comprehensive that if you know someone who is going to have a baby anytime soon, I hope you'll share this episode with them because the more knowledge they have, the more relaxed and confident they can be during their birthing process. And so much of our success is based on us being relaxed and confident and remembering that our intuition is often right. Sometimes we don't speak up. We keep things inside, even though our gut is maybe telling us to do otherwise. We fear being wrong. And you know what? Trish reminds us that being wrong is just fine too. And remember, this is not medical advice. This is purely Trish and me sharing our perspectives on labor and delivery based on our experiences. I hope you enjoy. Here's Trish. Hello, Trish. Welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life podcast. I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you. So I was fortunate to hear Trish be interviewed on another podcast. It was the Mother Good podcast. And I was just so impressed with Trish's knowledge and information and approach to labor and delivery. Many of you may know her on Instagram as Labor Nurse Mama. And I also know her as Trish. So Trish, for those listeners that don't know you, would you be so kind to tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Of course. Of course. And again, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I am a labor and delivery nurse. I've been a high-risk labor and delivery nurse for pretty much most of my career. I've been doing it for about 15 years, which is crazy. I, just like you, I have been pregnant six times myself. I've actually been pregnant more. I've had a few losses, but I've had uh, six deliveries. And I also have a daughter who's adopted. And I started this career later in life. I was just turning 30. And I was so excited about being a labor nurse because I loved being pregnant. I loved everything birth. I had people tell me, you're the only person and I know that goes to someone's birth and wants to have another baby. I just loved it. Like I just have such a heart for birth. And so I went to nursing schools to become a labor and delivery nurse. That was my sole purpose. It's funny now I, I laugh as a nurse because so many girls do that. And then they get into the birth arena and they just can't handle it because it's not, it's it's pretty diehard. Like you, you have to have a very particular type of personality to do anything in the birth world. 
And so I graduated from nursing school. I was so excited. I actually crossed the stage pregnant with my daughter. I took my boards on Friday, found out on Monday that I passed him and had her on Tuesday. So I even graduated nursing school big as a house pregnant with my daughter. She was just like this, the little like uh, graduation timeline everyone was watching at the end of school because we all knew that I was due right when we graduated. So it was really funny. As my belly got bigger, we all knew graduation is coming, graduation is coming. I mean, so it was kind of funny. Ended up doing it, working in med, med surge just on a basic floor for a year just to get my skills down pat and then had an opportunity to go to labor and delivery. And I was so excited. I could not wait. So I get to labor and delivery and I was like, oh, I'm going to have these this experience. I'm going to help women birth. I'm so excited. And I get in there and I was so disappointed. I am very fortunate because I'm a very strong-willed person and I I've always sought knowledge. I love to learn, love to learn. So I started seeking out my own, you know, taking classes, reading books. This was before, you know, the online arena was too, too much. Right. <laughs> like it is now. So I I had been very educated and really lucked up with the women who surrounded me because they taught me a lot of things that weren't the normal mainstream choices for childbirth. So I never really, I didn't know that other women came into their childbirth not educated and not understanding their rights. And I watched as women got coerced into decisions that were not the best decision for them and their body and their birth. And I watched just a lot of things that made me so sad. Mm. And so for the majority of my career, I did travel nursing, traveled all over the country, loved it. So I started going to the West Coast and I, I live in the East Coast and the East Coast is definitely way behind when it comes to what we call baby friendly practices where they do things that are actually what you should be doing. And so I'm in the West Coast and I'm seeing skin to skin. I'm seeing the golden hour. I'm seeing delayed cord clamping, all these things that I always did. And um, it was more the norm on the West Coast. And I would come back in between my travel assignments and work on the East Coast and I would just get discouraged again. And I realized what was happening is that I'm trying to educate these women as I admit them, but they're either in pain or they're fearful or they're anxious because it's a new situation. And it just was the worst time to educate women. Like you, you just really can't be educated while in labor. You need to have it solid totally. at that point. So I started really contemplating and praying about what I wanted to do. And about the same time, uh, my daughter-in-law and I started a shop called Habibi House, which is where I sell boho handcrafted labor and delivery gowns and nursing covers and swaddles. And we were doing that. Well, then I decided to do the blog. And so we started the blog and I started writing down these things that I would try to teach my patients at bedside. And I really loved it. I, it just, it flourished. The blog flourished because I, I definitely have a very um, different approach for a labor nurse. I'm not your normal labor nurse. I'm very much uh, holistic and all about women's rights and empowering women. And, and then I jumped into Instagram and it just took off from there. So it just, people were hungry. Women were hungry to know, hey, I can say no to an I. I can say no to getting my cervical exam. I can say no to this and I can say yes to that. And so anyway, I started really flourishing on Instagram because I come from the approach of it's your birth, it's your choice, but I'm going to give you the facts and I'm going to give you the information and I'm going to empower you with knowledge so that you can choose. So no one else is choosing for you. So I try to teach women before they get to the hospital, before they get to their prenatal appointment so that they understand what's happening and then they can make an informed decision because I was really sick of seeing women making decisions or not even making decisions, just things happening to them that they weren't even really given a full you know, information about it. So that's how Labor Nurse Mama started. And that's how I just really got started with my birth course, my online birth course. And now I'm working on a VBAC birth course. And my main goal is to empower women to be able to make the right choices for them, whether it's being induced or not being induced, whether it's having a vaginal delivery or a cesarean, or whether they want to have fetal monitoring or or not. I want them to be able to make that decision. I just think like the saying goes, knowledge is power. And what you're doing is you're providing knowledge. You know, I just had my sixth baby. She'll be two months old uh, this weekend. And I have to admit to 
you, Trish, until it was like I had four, five, and six. When I'm in the hospital, very rarely would I get kind of the, I don't know if I want to call it respect, but almost like someone wasn't really going to listen to me and my needs as well. And I didn't always have the confidence behind it or the knowledge behind it to really question it or push back. And now it's interesting. Now by baby six, I feel a lot more confident, a lot more knowledgeable. And it was like all of a sudden I got a level of respect from everyone around me like, oh, well, she knows what she's talking about. She has six kids. But I think that's really unfair. Like, sure, I've had six kids. But what about the mom who's the first time mom? She should be just as empowered as I am. Exactly. And she has the intuition and she, it's her body. No other time would we tell someone like, oh, no, 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 you're you're not right about your body. And I can't tell you the number of times where, you know, I'll go in, we all labor differently, right? And I'll go in the triage room and I'm really chatty when I'm in pain. Like I'm not, I don't get as quiet. I actually talk because it's I think it's a nervous talking and I can't tell you the number of times where I'm like hey it's it's really close and they're kind of like oh yeah uh-huh and then they're like oh crap get the doctor oh no you know it's like 911 here we go yeah. and it's like deja vu every single time as a labor nurse I've learned to listen to my patients in that way individually and not deciding how they should labor and I have a funny story about that because I when I was very new labor nurse, just a couple years, which it takes a lot longer than a couple years to become a seasoned labor nurse. I was a couple years in and a, a friend from church had asked me if I would be like her doula. And I'm doing that in quotes for her third child because she had had two epidurals. And with her third, she wanted to go natural or to go unmedicated on a Tuesday night. And she said, Hey, I think I'm in labor, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, well, I want you to take some Tylenol and lie down. Cause she had, she was having some aches and pains. I said, I want you to lay down and just call me back. So of course I didn't hear from her again. She was 40 weeks. So 41 weeks, exactly a week to the day, her husband calls me and he said, Hey, I think she's in labor. And I said, well, can I talk to her? And he's like, uh, she doesn't want to talk to you. I was like, okay, I'm coming over. (laughs) So I get there and I check her and she's five centimeters. And I was like, Oh my God, we're, we're headed to the hospital. She's like, no, no, no. I've been five for like a week. So I texted her midwife who was a good friend of mine. And she, sure enough said, yeah, she's been five. She's good. And so she wanted to take a shower. I said, no problem. Go take a shower. I'm going to go cover up my back seat because we're going to go ahead and head to the hospital. Her bag of water was bulging. So I knew we were limited in time. And so she comes out and she was like talking, 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 and then grunted. And I was like, I mean, she was fine and then grunted. And so I was like, lay down. So I check her. And of course we deliver the baby. So this, it was, it was quite the experience. So with her next baby, she asked me to do the same thing. She said, will you be my doula? And I said, yeah, but I will do it when I meet you at the hospital. I'm not coming to your house. And so we meet at the hospital and she's eight centimeters and she has a new nurse who is training and a midwife who's not her normal midwife, who wasn't my friend. And she, they, she wouldn't let them break her water and they were all really upset. So the midwife was like, well, I'm going to go home. I was like, uh, I, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Now, none of them know that I'm a labor nurse. They just think she's the doula, right? Right. And, and I actually had just come from my shift to her hospital, from my hospital to hers. And so they were just kind of dismissing me, you know, like you're the hippie doula. And so we get back to the room and she's talking, 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 and then lays her head back. And I I called the nurse in and I said, you need to get your table ready. She's going to have this baby. And they looked at me and they're like, yeah, what, you know, like whatever. So she calls her nurse nurse. She said, the doula said that she's about to have the baby. And so I'm watching Beth who, you know, was laughing and chatting. And I know she's about to push this baby out. So I grabbed just regular gloves off the wall and delivered this baby. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, this is seriously deja vu for me. Like this is deja vu, except I didn't have you near by my side. <laughs> it's so funny to me. So I, I learned through my friend that you cannot decide how someone's going to labor, or how they're going to process pain. Everyone process pain differently. Now, most women, when they get to that point, they do get a little more introverted, um, they, there, there's a lot more grunting and, and noise making, but some women 
really don't like my friend. She didn't. I mean, there was literally no warning except for one little noise. And I was like, oh no. Yeah. That's how I am right before is when I kind of shut down and then they never believe me and they are never ready. And it's like my husband just like shakes his head every time because finally this, this labor, my doctor hasn't always been at my delivery, which has totally been fine with me. And he always feels so bad. And he knows me really well. And he literally looked at all the nurses and he goes, whatever she tells you, do it. She knows her body really well. And it was like, at that point, they were like, oh, okay. Like I got another level of respect, but I didn't have that same perspective as when I was in for my first baby and my second baby. It was very different. No, it's disheartening. I I hate to hear that. Like, I really hate to hear when women feel like they're not the queen. Like, I always tell my students, like, you're the birthing queen. Like, you own that room. You've hired us. You you command what happens in that birthing suite. And I think that's so important for women to know and to feel empowered. And something you said was you didn't always have the confidence to speak up. And that's something I, I'm launching. I was telling you, I'm launching the VBAC lab, my VBAC course, actually in 10 days, I'm launching. So excited. I'm so exhausted, but I, I have a founding, a group of founding members, 15 women who joined me to help me like tweak this course. And we meet every week for, I say it in quotes, a little happy hour. And I'm the only one drinking wine. No, actually I have one girl who's not pregnant yet, but we meet for a virtual happy hour and we talk. And one of the things that each one of them have said after doing my module on birth rights, on your rights in the labor room, was they didn't, they felt like they were rude or they felt like they're dismissing the knowledge of their birth professionals or something, just this overwhelming feeling of I'm wrong if I speak up. And that's one thing I try to empower my my readers on Labor Nurse Mama and my students in both Loving Your Labor and in the VBAC Lab is that no, you're not hurting anyone. There's not about anyone's feelings. It's about your, your birth experience. And it's okay for you to speak up. You may not always be right, and it may not always go the way that you want it to go, but you need to speak up. You need to talk because otherwise what's going to happen is you're going to leave your birth feeling traumatized. And that was one of the main reasons why I ended up creating the VBAC lab was because when I started Labor Nurse Mom on Instagram, one of the things I kept hearing was these heartbreaking stories in my DMs, because I I still to this day, we I answer all my DMs and I get a ton. And that was something I kept hearing, like they didn't listen to me or they said this or I said no and they kept doing this and and I didn't want that and I didn't even know. Like and then I would hear these birth descriptions. They would tell me their stories and I knew darn well they had no idea what had happened in their birthing room because the way they described it was very like uninformed. And so I started like really pondering it and I kept hearing from these women who ended up in the OR. And I knew dang well, they did not need to end up in the OR. And if they had been educated, they probably wouldn't have. Now there are a lot of them that end up in the OR for very valid reasons, but they're also a great VBAC candidate. 90% of uh, cesarean section patients are candidates for VBACs, which hello, whoever talks about that? Nobody. Mm -hmm. Like these women are encouraged to get a repeat C-section, like it's the safe choice. And it's not, it's not if they're a candidate. So that's how I ended up creating the VBAC lab because I was really tired of hearing these traumatic stories. So part of my course is a whole module on processing your birth grief and your trauma from your cesarean because they've been through a traumatic experience. Right. Jumping topics a little bit, what do you think are the top five pieces of advice that you hope every mom that comes into connection with you on Instagram or through one of your courses, what are the top five pieces of advice that you like to give? The number one is if they're early in their pregnancy, I want them to understand that choosing their provider is the most influential decision they can have on their birth experience. Finding a provider who aligns with your hopes and dreams and expectations of your pregnancy and your delivery. I mean, some women don't mind seeing, uh, you know, a handful of providers and then seeing one of them for the delivery. Others want to see the same one, the whole, the whole delivery, you know, the whole pregnancy and then have that provider deliver. I, I am very much an advocate for interviewing a provider 
women don't realize that they can go in. And I'm not talking when they go into that, you know, that first prenatal exam where they have their legs up in the stirrups. I'm talking about like sitting across from a desk, talking to them about what you want, because what what's going to happen is they're going to, let's say what's really important to mama is that she does skin to skin and delayed bathing and delayed cord clamping. And she really wants to have intermittent monitoring. And she starts telling this to the provider. You can tell by their demeanor and how they answer you if they're just dismissive or they're friendly to those ideas. So I think that's really a huge important step that a lot of women miss out on. And the other thing, the opposite end of that is you can change providers. I've encouraged readers to change providers at 36, 37 weeks. So they, and and even someone can fire the provider during birth and they will have like a hospitalist come in or what have you. So if you're feeling like your provider is not acknowledging your desires or condescending or dismissive of you, you can switch providers. Like that's totally fine because your provider can make or break your experience. Totally. I love that advice. Yeah. The next thing I would say is education. Like education is everything. Like you said, and that's something I say over and over and over again on Instagram and on the blog is knowledge is power. It is. It truly is power. And I tell everyone, you would not go to a foreign country or do something big in your life that is going to be impactful without knowing what you're doing or how you're going to do it. And understanding your body, understanding what happens in the process of labor, because it's pretty much 90% the same physically, like the physiological side of it. And understanding that, understanding, like having a plan, how am I going to handle, you know, early labor? Like what's my plan? And then second stage of labor, how you're going to handle transition? How are you going to handle postpartum? Like being prepared for postpartum, all of that is being educated because if you don't know what to expect, how can you prepare? And you and I both know that being prepared, even for postpartum is so important. Being prepared for breastfeeding. Uh I mean, that's huge. I, that was my other huge disappointment when I I had, I mean, I pretty much breastfed my entire life at this point. So I've breastfed a lot of babies and I, I couldn't believe how difficult it was to help someone after delivery with breastfeeding, if they had no knowledge, they would lay there like a wet noodle. And I'm trying to get the baby on the breast and I'm holding the baby, I'm holding the breast and mom's exhausted. And if she didn't know just basic understanding of how to latch the baby the first time and like positioning, it really was difficult there at bedside. And I I literally have never sweat as much as I sweat when I'm trying to help a new mom who doesn't have any clue. And my back hurts so bad. So like, that's a whole nother thing that just being educated for pregnancy, for delivery, for postpartum, for breastfeeding, all of that is so important. The other thing would be knowing your rights. Like you have to know your rights and that goes hand in hand with education as well. Understanding like right now I'm doing a series on interventions because a lot of women do not understand. Like this is something I get all the time in my DMs. My doctor said that he's going to induce me at 39 weeks if blah, 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 blah doesn't happen. And I'm like, wait a minute. Do you want to be induced? No. Is everything okay with baby? Yes. How are you? Fine. You have any medical indications for induction? No. They just, my doctor said that this and this. I said, well, you need to, you know, like you need to research that. Like if you don't want to be induced, you can say no. Now, again, one of my big things in Loving Your Labor Academy and in the VBAC lab is yes, you can say no. You have every right to refuse, but should you? So I want them to understand like, what is this intervention they're going to introduce? Why do they use it? What are the indications for it? And what are the alternatives to it? And what are some compromises if I don't quite want that intervention? So I teach them what I call the BRAIN acronym, which I learned in nursing school. And it's just basically a way in which they can process the information and make an informed decision and find out if there's alternatives. And so understanding you know, your rights is important. And I always tell everyone, no hard no's and no hard yeses in labor and delivery. Like you have to come in with an educated mind and and a way in which that you can make decisions that are empowering for your birth. That one is really interesting to me because I, like you, have a lot of friends who don't want to be induced and yet have been told they have to be induced or their doctor is really pushing for that. And yet, now if there's a, a real valid reason, I get it. And if they have some health concern, but a lot of my friends whose physicians 
organizations push for that, I haven't heard any glaring health reasons. And they don't, yeah. you know, they are not a huge fan of Pitocin, or maybe they had maybe a negative experience before. And I always tell people that I've had to really dig my heels in because I didn't want to be induced. And I would, to be honest, my last three babies, I probably would have been induced if it wasn't for me kind of saying no. Like, I don't want to be induced. I actually give me time. And a lot of times, I think now what happens is, especially if you're of a certain age, they definitely kind of push that. So like, I'm 39. And it was kind of said to me, you know, oh, well, you know, you are a little bit older, the risk does increase for the baby and all these things, even though I've had really healthy labors, I've had healthy babies, I've had healthy pregnancies. So I see that encouraged a lot. Oh, it's it's terrible. It really is terrible. And what, the other thing, that, and this would probably be my fourth point, is to understand don't don't do anything in your pregnancy that's out of convenience or curiosity. And that's something we we teach our students all the time. If it's curiosity or convenience, it doesn't need to be done. So one thing that's huge thing that's always done out of curiosity during pregnancy is the vaginal exam. Like. You don't have to have one before you're 40 weeks. You don't even have to have one before you're in labor. There's really no point because it can lead to so much disappointment. You know, if you go in, you're 38 weeks and they're like, oh, and and this is how they'll do it. Well, you're only one centimeter. That's a huge, like, that's a huge disappointment to hear, oh, you're only one centimeter. And that's, that's not okay. Like, they they need to wait because what's happening in the vaginal exam, when you have a vaginal exam before you're in labor, they're not taking in account all the wonderful hormones that come into play, like relaxin, which opens up the pelvis for delivery. So if they're checking and now you're potentially being told, well, your baby's kind of big, your pelvis is small. Well, don't forget that our body releases relaxin when we're in labor. Your pelvis doesn't need to stretch out before then. So there's so many things that factor in when you're actually in labor. And I have moms, you know, message me all the time that say, oh, I got checked. I'm 37 weeks. They said I'm not even dilated. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You're 37 weeks. Like ACOG, which is the Academy of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they state that your pregnancy is term, like your the end of pregnancy is 42 weeks, not 40 weeks, 42 weeks. So your post dates after 42 weeks. Well, they try to make it like your post dates after 40 weeks. It's not true. You're pregnant for 40 weeks, but you are at your post dates after 42. So you can healthily go to 42 weeks without being induced as long as everybody's healthy. And even though I push to go to 42 weeks, I always tell them, make sure they're doing BPPs, make sure they're doing NSTs because you could be off on your dates. So I wouldn't want to see anything harmful happen, but if you're doing fine, there's no reason you can't go to 42 weeks. None. And don't you think we are all so unique? So for instance, I have friends like your friend you were talking about earlier that dilate really early, but they stay there for weeks. And then there was someone like me. People couldn't believe it when I told them this. I said, I do not dilate early. I don't. In fact, at my 40-week appointment with my last three kids, I was one centimeter. Now, most people would cry at hearing that. And so actually, ironically, he he wanted to check me at 39 weeks, I remember this. And I said, no, I know I'm not dilated. I'm fine. And no need to check me. Now, normally I probably would have let him, but I kind of realized I don't need to be checked. There's no reason for me. I know. And so, so at 40 weeks, I think it even shocked other people. Well, you've had all these babies. You're probably like walking around at a four right now and you don't even know it. And I'm like, no, like, I don't think I am. We all dilate differently. And so yeah. many, like you said, put so much pressure on when they get checked vaginally, what that number is when really it means nothing. It really means nothing. It really doesn't. The only time it means something is when you're completely dilated and the baby's coming out. Exactly. And you're, you're having a baby. (laughs) Right. And I'm sure you're like me. Like I, I'm the same way with dilation and I will be at three forever during my labor. And all of a sudden I'm pushing. That's me completely. In fact, it almost bizarre when I tell people, because I kind of, my last few, I was able to labor through the night. So I actually could go to sleep and I kind of labor through the night and I kind of stay there. And then I get to the hospital. And then once I hit that, that number, this time, 
when I hit a certain dilation point, I'm having a baby. Me too. Yeah. Three and then I'm gone. Done. Yep. Yep. That's the same. Last pregnancy that I had, I, my daughters, I had my daughters in there and I told them, (laughs) I told them ahead of time, I don't, you know, I'm really introverted. I don't make a lot of noise. I'm not a screamer. I'm not a yeller, nothing. And this one, I got really rude. And I was like, if I'm a three still, I'm going to kill you to my midwife. (laughs) He was my very good friend. And I was a three. And so I went to the bathroom and came out and pushed him out. So I was like, it's just crazy. It was really funny. So that was something she repeated to me quite often afterwards. Like, <laughs> if you're a three, you're going to kill me. And I'm like, yep, I know. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I tell my patients, whatever happens in the labor room stays in the, ha- the labor room. And I always tell, especially my unmedicated patients, like I always love when these you know, cute young couples come in and they're like, hi, baby. Hi, honey. Hi, sweetie. And they're so loving. And I'm, I always prepare dad like, you know, her demeanor is going to change a little. Don't take it personally. And, and I always tell mom, you know, I want to have, let's have a code word. So if something we're doing is bothering you, that's fine. Like you're allowed to be bothered. Like you never know when you're labor, what's going to bother you. And I see these moms who try so hard not to say, stop touching me, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so I always give them permission and we get come up with some kind of code word for them to like, I usually tell them if I'm doing something that is not very comforting or it's aggravating you, that's completely fine. So just, you know, your code word for someone to stop, but I usually blame it on myself so that the poor little husband doesn't feel bad. But it's, it's always funny to me, like we change so much in labor and it's such a, um, emotional experience for a woman and just being allowed. Like that's one thing I want. I want them to like my readers to know they have freedom to be whoever they want. If they want to get naked and howl, fine. If they want to get, you know, be completely covered up, have a sweater over their gown or whatever, and, and be very introverted. Fine. It's their room. Own your birth. That's Heather and I have a, an ebook called own your birth because we, it's so important to own your birth. It's your experience and it can go how you would like it to go. I'm there to make sure everything's safe. So I, I always like to picture it as the birthing couple and I'm, I'm hands-on as much as they need me. So I, I follow mom's cues. If she wants me right there with her and on, you know, touching her, I'm there with her. That I'm totally that kind of labor nurse. If she wants me hovering in the background and waiting, then, then I do that. But my skills are needed if she needs them. They're not there because it's a part of birth. And I did a post on Labor Nurse Mama that said something to the effect, like something about women thinking, like there's a lot of people who think birth can't happen without interventions. And it's not true. You never needed to have that vaginal exam. You were going to have those babies no matter what. Right. 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 You didn't need all of that intervening. So that's one thing people say to me all the time. I don't have to have a vaginal exam. No, you really don't. Now, if you're being induced, yeah, we do because we have to, mo- the, the medicine is titrated based on your dilation. So it is important in, in cases like that. And, and I tell my, my patients and my students, like with a vaginal exam in particular, there's indications when I need to check and being able to understand when a, a cervical exam is needed or not needed is key because when you know that, if your labor nurse comes like me and says, you know what, this is going on and I really need to see what's happening, then you can say, okay, I trust her and I understand like this is a necessary time. I'm going to say, I think my last thing that I really advocate for is for you to have, um, which I've kind of touched on in each of these points, so to have a purposeful birth plan, but to also have a backup. So when I do my birth plan consults, I walk through the vaginal delivery and how one of the first things I have them do is really close their eyes and what, how do they picture their labor room? Because I want them to take over that labor room. I want it to be the way they want it. And there's ways that we can make it that way, which is like one of the reasons why I I started selling labor gowns because I think it's a special occasion. And you know, when you buy a special occasion dress or what have you, it makes you feel special and important and you don't feel like a patient. 
I hate those stinking labor gowns. And it makes you feel like you're just a regular old hospital patient. Well, you're not. So you can wear what you want. There's certain things you probably don't want to wear in case you have to like, you know, something goes on, but um, owning their room is so important. So I think part of the birth plan should be figuring out what they want their labor room to be like. And, you know, whether they bring battery light uh, operated lights or they bring essential oils or affirmations to put on the wall or picture frame with a picture of someone that's important. Um, or, you know, just a blanket from home or a pillow or their own clothing, whatever it is that they can make it because it's been proven that when you, when a woman is comfortable and feels safe and secure, her birth progresses normally, less eventfully, you know, you know, always, there can always be something happen. But for the most part, if you have, if you feel comfortable and you feel safe, you're going to birth your baby. When you start having fear and anxiety and lack of privacy and interruptions in the birth process, even if we're talking about an animal, like a, a dog mm-hmm. that's having a baby, same thing. If they're interrupted, their labor halts or stops or slows down. So for a woman as well, like she needs to take over that room and make it hers. And dim lights are huge. When you have dim lights in your labor room, you release melatonin and melatonin works alongside oxytocin. When you're scared and you're fearful, you release adrenaline. Well, adrenaline stops oxytocin, which is the labor hormone. So it's really important to know all that and have a plan and and go through the things that are important to you and then talk. And, and I make my birth plans very simple. You don't need a five page birth plan. You need bullet points. Your nurse is not going to have time to sit down and read like a, a journal. You know, she's going to have bullet points. So it's easy for her to access and to see and refer to. But then also to have a plan B, if you have special circumstances like a cesarean or a NICU event, you want to understand what's going to happen and just have like a brief little plan. Like, so I teach my students how to do a gentle, you know, a gentle family centered uh, cesarean so that they understand the choices they have in the OR as well, so that that birth experience feels more like their own. Hey friends, it's Beth. If you are enjoying today's podcast, I really hope you will join me every week for what I hope you find are inspiring interviews and bold content on topics like family and career and health. And can I also ask you a favor? Can you press that subscribe button and write a review if you like what you hear today? By doing those things, you are helping me get the word out. And I truly would be ever, ever so grateful. It also allows you to be the first to know when new content arrives. So please subscribe today. Now, let's get back to our guests. I think all of this advice has been, is so helpful. And I just wish I would have had it, you know, 10 years ago when I had my first. It's just, thank you for all of it. So now I'm going to go through a few topics that, you know, some of my listeners have suggested and, and ask about a lot. So what are a couple natural ways if someone wants to go into labor, they're ready to have the baby, what do you say to those people on some natural ways to help maybe encourage labor to happen? Well, the first one is sex, for sure. Having sex and semen needs to be on the inside. It's a natural prostaglandin. It's it's very similar to what we use for um, cervical ripening to soften the, the cervix. Especially with a first-time mom, your cervix has to get soft first before it will open. And uh, semen is a natural prostaglandin that works with your body to allow your cervix to start softening so that it can dilate. But the number one method that I think and has been scientifically proven to induce is nipple stimulation. So that's one I would look into. But you definitely want to know what you're doing because you can hyperstimulate your your uterus and have back-to-back contractions and you don't want that. So they, they definitely need to learn how to do it you know, before they do it. Perfect. That's really helpful. Cause I'm sure you get asked that a lot. People are like, hey, you know, <laughs> help Trish. I, I want to have this baby. And so I have a blog post on labor nurse mama that has some natural induction methods. It's one of the things is the German midwives cocktail, which uses, uh, castor oil. And I'm not one of those nurses is like, no, 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 castor oil. I, it, it works, but it's not fun. So you have to be ready to be careful. Yeah. Well, those are super helpful. Okay. I'm just going to say some words or some topics and I want your reaction to them. Pitocin. Oh, it's overused. I highly think it's overused. I'm really um, not a huge fan of Pitocin when we need it. 
for a hemorrhage or we need it to encourage labor, it's needed, but it's definitely overused. I always recommend that you um, research because the research has proven that if you need Pitocin, if they go low dose and they go very slow, that it's very effective. And once you get to active labor, ask them to, to either turn it down or turn it off. Our body only has a certain amount of oxytocin receptors and Pitocin is the, the synthetic version of our hormone oxytocin. So once those receptors are filled, they're filled. So to keep going up and keep going really hard and fast on it really is counterproductive. So I always tell people to ask for low and slow. I like that advice. I had Pitocin on my first baby and I'll tell you that I always tell moms that that was probably my most painful labor even with an epidural just because I do blame a little bit of the Pitocin experience. And the next topic, it kind of flows into this, but is moving. And I know you very much want to encourage your patients to move. Can you talk a little bit about movement during labor? Yeah, I actually just posted a, I think I did a TikTok video and a Reels and a post on this because I'm doing labor intervention series right now. And one of the first interventions we do when you get to the hospital is we restrict your movement. Mm -hmm. And it is counterproductive in labor. So I highly recommend movement during labor. It just makes sense. Like, you know, I tell my patients, like if you were going to have a bowel movement, you wouldn't lay back. No. You know, you get up and moving. <laughs> so it's just counterproductive to labor. Movement is key. Gravity, moving around, dancing, swaying your hips, getting on a ball, getting down on your hands and knees, all of those things, sitting on a toilet, all of that is, is productive labor techniques. Yeah. One of the things that was like a huge difference maker in my labor experience was that I would go walk the stairs in the hospital and that was like my thing. Like I loved it. And I credit- I'm I, I know. I know. I credit walking those stairs in the hospital to laboring well consistently. It just dilation happened better. I but my first labor, the first thing they did was get me laid down. And I tell moms yes. all the time, you know, if you're not at the hospital yet and you want to keep going, walk the stairs in your house. Go, you know, go walk a hill. Just walking doesn't always help me. I actually need a little bit more strenuous. And then I I just start dilating and it it is such a good tool for me. But I always feel bad when moms are told, don't move, you know, sit still. And I'm like, oh no. (laughs) There are times when restricted movement is important. Let's say she has preeclampsia and she has a very high blood pressure. Then we're going to want to keep you still. We're going to want to keep you in in a dim room, which again, I tell everyone dim the lights. But there are times, but I tell my patients all the time, if you stubbed your toe or you jammed your finger you would not stop moving. Your natural inclination to deal with that pain would be to shake your finger or wiggle your toe. Movement helps with pain. So it's it's really an important thing that people miss out, that their labor would be a lot easier. This is why I tell everyone to stay at home as long as possible. Oh, shout that to the back. I cannot agree with you. I mean, that has been such a difference maker to me, not rushing in. And like I said, I was fortunate just on my labor timing, the last two, that I kind of labored through the night and it was a beautiful thing. And then when I got to the hospital was when I was ready to have that. You know, I wasn't stuck there. Well, and it's so important. That's so important because like I said before, your environment, your birthing environment can make all the difference in the world. So where do you feel the most comfortable? At home. When you're working all day, you want to get home and take off your clothes and put your pajamas and you want to be at home in your environment. Well, labor is the same. Like, just think about like animals, like just looking at the instincts of animals and we are an animal, right? They, what do they do? They go back to their den. They, they get into a safe place. Well, the hospital doesn't always feel so safe and it doesn't feel comfortable. You know, the lights are bright, the smells, all of that, which is why I recommend, you know, dim lights and candle, battery operated candles and essential oils, because you can mask those things that make it feel like a hospital. So if they are a new mom, when do you tell them to go to the hospital? You're a first time mom. You want to do four 60, 120. So basically I don't want them going to the hospital until their contractions are less than four minutes apart each one lasting for 60 seconds. And I want that to happen for two hours for 120 minutes. With anyone that's had a baby less than five minutes apart, 60 seconds for one hour, then go to the hospital. The chances of a first-time mom having their baby in their car or at home 
is so slim, but if it does more power to you, because babies who come out like super fast like that, they always do much better. So the the chances are really slim that a first time mom's going to have her baby at home. Second time, you know, she wants to be a little careful. Now I always say on top of that, when I give those rules, listen to your intuition. If you think, oh my God, I need to get there. But Trish said, don't until go to the hospital. It's fine. You know, but the sooner you get there, the more interventions you will have. I think that's such good advice. I just loved being home longer and I kind of didn't realize I could do that or that I should do that. And it worked so well for me. And I feel like it, it made for a much more positive, you know, birthing experience, like you said. Okay. So next one, what about the patients that test positive for strep B. I have an interesting story, and I realize this is a little bit more pregnancy-related than it is labor-related, but you know, some babies I tested positive for group strep B, some I did not. But I kind of did my own little case study of one, which I'd love for you to to tell me I'm crazy or, you know, maybe there is some some uh, truth to this. This time around and the last time, I really focused on kind of probiotic foods and different things before my group B strep tests. And ironically, I tested negative. Could be totally, I didn't do, you know, I've heard about the yogurt baths and all these things, whatever. But then I've had friends who have been doing the same thing. And they were positive their last pregnancy. They started taking a probiotic before, or they started doing maybe apple cider vinegar or yogurts or different sauerkraut, and they tested negative too. So I don't know if it's just a fluke, but I found being positive for group B strep was not as not very great because you had to be on a IV with that medication. What's your take on all yeah. of that? Well, I have... <laughs> This is a hard one because I get in arguments with NICU nurses about this a lot, but I, I had half my pregnancies before they ever even tested you for GBS. Right. So it's kind of, you know, like kind of hard for me, but I have seen a baby that has gotten it and it was scary and it was quick. And um, so I've seen that side of it. So what you're saying though about the probiotics makes a lot of sense to me because this bacteria is something we normally have, but it can flare up and it can go away. So it makes sense that if you're taking probiotics or you're doing apple cider vinegar, or anything else that suppresses a bacteria that you would be negative. So I think that's genius, honestly. It was really great. And I was so excited because I kind of like, I don't know, dabbled with that on my fifth. And I'm like, wow, I was negative. And then I'm like, I'm going to try this again because I have, I have been positive for it, I think three times out of my six. Okay. But since I've done that, and then I had a girlfriend try it, she's like, bet. I don't know if it was the case, but I did what you said on that. I tried it and I was negative. And she was just thrilled to not be tied to that IV. Yeah, no, that it, it makes sense to me. I actually want to look into it a little bit more. I think I'm a, I have a really good friend who's a naturopathic doctor, so I may ask her about that. My other piece of advice to moms, because when they find out, they always freak out. And then they ask me, like, I wanted to labor at home. Now I can't. I still encourage them to labor at home, to listen to their body. They want to go a little bit sooner. So I okay. usually tell them to double my rule but not to go until they're having consistent contractions. So if it's their first baby, do it for when it's less than eight minutes apart, lasting for 60 seconds up to two hours, same thing. So just double the, the you know, less than time. So if it's their, if their second baby, then less than 10 minutes, and they're still going to get a couple doses more than likely. Now, again, if they feel a lot of pressure and they're feeling like it's time to go, they need to go. But I, I usually, I'm, I'm kind of bad when it comes to being that labor nurse because like I said, half, like part of my practice and part of my pregnancies, they didn't even test us. Like this is a relatively new thing in the birth world. Right. What about epidurals? I recommend that they research and they study and they decide what they want to do and then they, they commit. So I, I just did an unmedicated, the pain of labor unmedicated module for the VBAC lab. I just recorded it and, and then my founding members and I, we sit down and we have our happy hour and we talk about it. And every one of them said the same thing that we're planning to go to Medicaid. They're like, oh my God, like I was crying. I was taking notes. I'm like so encouraged because what I tell you is if you're going unmedicated, you have to commit to that. It's kind of like running a marathon or something. You don't say, well, I might finish it. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to prepare for this marathon, but I'm not sure if I want to actually finish the marathon. So I tell them if you're deciding that you want to go unmedicated, because I can tell you 100%, the girls who come in who say, 
I think I'm going to go unmedicated, but I don't know. I might. They end up getting epidural. It's just, it's a mindset. Labor is a mindset. It's totally in your mind. Like 90% of labor is in your head. So if you decide that you want to go unmedicated, you need to be educated. You need to have a pain management plan. How are you going to handle it? So you and I both know transition is a beast. So you have to be prepared for that. You have to understand it. You have to have a plan for it. You have to have a plan for the pushing. You have to have a plan for early labor, active labor, all of that. You need a plan. So again, that goes back to education. You have to understand what are you going to go through and how are you going to handle it? And then understanding the different ways you can. There's hydrotherapy, there's hypnotherapy, there's focused breathing, there's focused relaxation, there's therapeutic touch. There's all these different things you can do to find. And then you have a basis of all of them. And then you figure out which one works for you. Because having a high pain tolerance or a low pain tolerance doesn't matter in labor. It's having a plan that matters. If you decide that you want to have an epidural, I always recommend that you don't get one until active labor. That's that's my recommendation. But then if I have a patient who has a really like just not enjoying her labor at all and she's really freaking out, then I'm and she's planning to get one, I'm like, go ahead and get one. It's no big deal. Mm-hmm. But I, I highly think it's your choice. Like what you want to do, which whichever one, you need to commit to it. Now something happens during labor that something changes. Just being open, because again, it's things change in labor. It does. But I think that you have to have a mindset of I'm going to do it and this is how. So do you feel feel that your patients that do a water birth, I've heard consistently over and over, I know you mentioned hydrotherapy, that a lot of them feel it does help with pain management. Yeah, I have. And I've also experienced it as a patient. I did not have a water delivery, but I've had two uh, labors in, in a birthing tub. Incidentally, I, at the very end, I have a very like particular, like, way in which I flop into the bed at the end and deliver. I don't know why, but I seem to end up that way every time. So even when I was laboring in the tub, one of them I was allowed to deliver in the tub, but I got aggravated and got out. But I will say that the pain, I mean, it's its an effective way to handle pain. Like it's definitely a, a pain management plan that works efficiently. Even the shower works, but submerging is definitely, I recommend it. And a lot of the home birth midwives that I know, that that's how they do my, almost all their deliveries is in the tub because it is such an effective way to, to handle pain. I mean, think about it if your back's hurting. Yes, totally. I mean, I even think when I work out really hard, when I'm sore, I had sciatica at the end of this pregnancy. I'd nev- I never had had that before, by the way. I have a whole new level of respect for anyone out there suffering yeah. from sciatica. But what was I drawn to? I wanted a warm bath with some Epsom salts. Like that's what I wanted when I right. my muscles were hurting. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. Also, really quick, back to the, the pain management. Are there a few things that maybe a new mom needs to know on other medications she can take during labor from uh, pain management that aren't an epidural? Are there a few ones that you could mention or that she should just maybe educate herself on? Well, I, I really like for everyone to be educated on all that we offer. Um, not all hospitals mm-hmm. offer the same things, but majority of them offer IV medications and the epidural. And then some offer nitrous oxide, which right now with COVID, things are a little wonky, but they aren't offering, most of them aren't offering it. But nitrous oxide is also, it's patient controlled. So she breathes it in just during the contraction. It's it's immediately gone. Um, it works wonderful for some people, not so great on for others. As far as IV medications, I'm not a huge fan. Most places use, there's three meds we use, fentanyl, statol, and nubane. Um, and not all hospitals use all three and some have a, like a, you know, one or two options. Fentanyl works the best that I've seen, but usually with IV medications, the first dose works great. And then the subsequent gro- doses just make you feel groggy, but you still feel all the pain. So to me, that's not worth it. The other problem with IV medications is that it does cross the placenta. So it is in the baby's system. It's safe for them while they're in you because they're not having to use their lungs. But once they're born, if they're born too close to your dosing, then we're going to have to have NICU there and um, they potentially could have respiratory depression and they're already having to learn how to breathe through their lungs. So it's not really highly recommended. So we typically won't give it to you after six or seven uh, centimeters. So you know, as well as I know, that's when you need it is after six or seven. So 
if, if you're going to have medication. So personally, I say go straight for the epidural or the nitrous oxide that the IV medications aren't as effective in my opinion. Okay, great. So one other question that I'm sure you get asked a lot, and I remember you've answered this quite a bit on, on Instagram is, I know you encourage kind of a simple packing for the hospital, but what are kind of those few things that the new moms or, or moms should think of when they're packing for the hospital? Well, it's funny because with COVID, I'm a little bit different <laughs> than what I said before, but um, I, I really recommend that you leave out the things. We give you so much in the hospital. You don't need pads. You don't need panties. You don't need diapers. Bring maybe a gown or two for postpartum. Usually you'll only need one, but you never know if you're going to bleed through it. I personally recommend a labor gown. Bring some socks that are comfortable that have the no slip because ours are horrible or have socks and slippers. A really good water bottle that keeps your water cold and, you know, ready. I also recommend bringing some either like a drink, like electrolyte replacer that you can add to your water or flavoring you can add to the water during labor or coconut water. Those are all great things to have. Chapstick, um, depending, you know, the bag is also different depending on your pain management plan. So if you're going to have an epidural, you don't really need a tennis ball or, you know, something like that or a stress ball or what have you. Toiletries, just little size travel toiletries. And uh, make sure that you pack. I always recommend packing like a high protein snack. Um, I'm completely an advocate for sneaking food. So don't tell anybody that. I totally concur with that statement. <laughs> yeah, some gum or some mint, something because there sometimes there's a chance that you haven't eaten for a while and your mouth just tastes bad, but I it's just very simple and easy. Like we provide you with so much, you don't need a lot. I always recommend bringing your own pillow because our pillows suck. I would agree with that. And I recommend bringing a nursing pillow as well and a blanket. And the other thing that you feature a lot on your site is the peanut balls that a lot of the hospitals oh, now. Yeah. And I yeah. and I loved I loved that concept. And to be honest, even when I hadn't arrived to the hospital, I kind of put my pillows like a peanut ball when I was laboring through the night. Oh yeah, for sure. And those of us who have been doing labor and delivery for a long time, we've always done something similar to the peanut ball, but the peanut ball just makes it much easier. What we used to do was we would put the bed side table next to the bed and roll mom on her side, put her pillows on the bedside table, put her leg on the bedside table, and then lift the table as high as we could comfortably for her mm -hmm. to open her pelvis. So we always did that. So that when the peanut ball came along, it was like hot dog because it's so much easier. And it looks a lot better than having her like straddling the bedside table, you know? So, um, but what it does is it gets you in alignment and opens up that pelvis just perfectly. I really, it's, it's definitely a better thing for a mom who has an epidural because I want you moving. Now, if you're sleeping, like you were doing, that's one thing. But if, if you don't have an epidural, I want you up and moving around, you know? So when you're resting, it's great to use a peanut ball, but otherwise you should be changing positions often. But for an epidural mom, it's life-changing. I've had, I've come on to my shift where I get report and I've got a patient who has an epidural that's been hovering at four to five and hasn't made any change for hours or a mom whose baby's not engaging and I get her on the peanut ball and I do like all my little tricks and boom, she's ready to deliver. So I've seen some, and, and, and alongside a lot of labor nurses would attest to the fact that we can get you dilated pretty quick with the peanut ball. Well, I love that we got to talk about that because I think it's, even though there's like kind of a community of people that totally know all about it and know to ask for it, I feel like there's this whole world of moms that have no idea what even a peanut ball is. So no, I have a great uh, video on reels and a post. One of my friends that I worked with, uh, she came up with this positioning we call her name's Kayla. So we came, she called it the Kayla and it's, life-changing, I mean, for dilation. So you guys can check out that on my reels. I would love to have you guys come and check me out. I, like I said, I have a complete birth course uh, called Loving Your Labor Academy. And then the VBAC lab, we only open our uh, enrollment a few times a year. And we do that because we've got Facebook communities for our students and I can only do so much. So I, I want to be there and my girls drop in and say, you know, I went to my prenatal appointment today and 
this is what happened. And But the other thing that I think is really important that most women don't know is that a birth class is usually reimbursed by your insurance company. And we're able to provide you with those codes that you need. And to me, that just shows how important a birth class is. And both the VBAC lab and Loving Your Labor both is a full birth course so that you can claim it for insurance. How cool is that? That is so cool. Yeah. And think about it. Why do they cover it? Because they know that a mom who has been educated is going to have less interventions and less likely to end up in the OR. So it's worth their money to reimburse it to you because a couple hundred dollar class is a lot cheaper for them than a $17,000 surgery, right? So I just feel like that is such a significant factor to know that insurance covers birth education because it's so stinking important. Oh, well, this has been so educational for me, Trish. And I seriously could probably pick your brain for like another hour. So (laughs) I know uh, you have your family and your new course and everything to get back to. But I know we mentioned your Instagram handle. Is that the best way for people to connect with you and find out more information? Or what is the best way to connect with you? For sure. Instagram is great. If they want to join my um, mailing list, I'm not, I, I don't overwhelm people with emails, but that's how I like let them know what's going on and share my new blog posts and my new Instagram posts. And um, that's where they can like shoot back questions. They can always send me a DM on Labor Nurse Mama. Like I said, I answer them all. So yeah, they can connect there or on the blog, labornursemama.com. Well, I can honestly tell you that your site has been one of the most informational sites for me. And I feel like I have a decent amount of knowledge, but I've learned so much. And I know other moms listening and dads listening here today will take away a lot from your site. So go find Trish on social media. Thank you for your time today. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Thank you for listening today. For more information, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember, friends, be you boldly. The world needs you.